destroy this temple in three days, I will build it up. And then also chasing the money changes out of the temple. Now, most scholars will say, most likely those were two different incidents that occurred in the temple. The first one about prophesying that, uh, you know, the temple would be destroyed and ruined in three days, he would build it up. Most likely came at the beginning of his ministry. Because in the Synoptic Gospels, when they uh, bring Jesus before uh, a high priest, the witnesses can only vaguely remember what he said. So it couldn't have occurred just a day or two before. It was something that happened probably two years prior. So John probably has those two incidents, the prophecy about the temple, and then the money changers being thrown out of the temple. Two separate incidents, he merges into one. He brings back him throwing, uh, him throwing the money changes out of the temple, joins it to the prophecy about destroying the temple. Why? Because he wants to have the Lazarus story be the key story that precipitates Jesus' death. It's in giving life to Lazarus that he's going to lose his life, but losing his life, he's going to bring life to all people, including his own nation. So it's the irony. So for editorial purposes, John relocates an incident. He combines the two to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when the most likelihood throwing the changes out of the temple occurred right before his death. So, uh, and again, uh, I mentioned to you uh, that particular incident is one that I use in terms of my dissertation. Uh, when Jesus was asked to give a sign, I gave him the right to throw these people out of the temple. He presented himself, destroyed his temple. Because it will build up. They mistook what he said. They thought he meant destruction. And John mentions that. So how can you know this took 40 years to build? You're going to restore it in three days. Then John mentions that Jesus was referring to his own body, and his disciples didn't understand what he said until after the resurrection. Then they realized what he meant by saying that in three days I will build it up, meaning that he would restore it to life. So. Okay, uh, right. what I'm going to do now is we're going to move to the beginning of this discourse, chapter 3. Now this is the first oral exposition in the Gospel of John of the revelation that was brought by Jesus. In other words, this is the first time Jesus speaks and talks about the message that he came upon earth to give. Prior to that, you have the money changers. He's not teaching there. He's acting. Same thing, he works a sign, the miracle of Cana. The first time he teaches, explains the revelation that his father sent him to give to the world. And it gives the principal things of that revelation, that message he was supposed to give in a capsule form. Now, Nicodemus is mentioned only in the Gospel of John, not in the Synoptics. And he represents a group of among the Jewish leaders who hesitantly came to believe in Jesus. In chapter 12, 42, mentions, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. 
but for fear of the Pharisees that didn't confess it, because they should have put out of the synagogue. For the love of the praise of men more than the praise of God. So Nicodemus is one of those leaders who uh, was interested in and came to believe in Jesus, but not, you know, with both feet in. I was worried about, you know, what the, uh, the Jewish leaders were saying to He most likely belonged to the Sanhedrin, which was the highest uh, governing body of the Jewish people. That was composed of the Sadducees and the scribes, and the lay elders of the aristocracy. And we know John, in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, talks about three groups of people. Talks about many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. So those are people who have kind of a partial faith because they're won over by the amazing things he's doing. Jesus did not trust himself to them because he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of him. For he himself knew what he was in them. And the second group of people would be the disciples. They had a fuller faith because right before that, in Cana, after he worked the sign, he worked the first of these signs, uh, and, and it says he reveals the glory of God, and the disciples came to believe in him. They had a more satisfactory faith. Partial faith would be Nicodemus and his crowd. The disciples had a more satisfactory faith. Many had those who uh, had a complete lack of faith. The Jews at the temple wanted to throw them out. Now, the format of this discourse with Nicodemus. Nicodemus makes three statements, verses 2, verses 4, verse 9. The last two, 4 and 9, are explicit questions. First one, verse 2, is treated as an implicit question. As we'll see, there's an answer, but we kind of know what the question was that Jesus was answering. So four, how can a man be born when he's old? Nine, uh, how could this be? And we say we're going to all three of them. Okay, to all three questions, Jesus begins his answer by saying, I solemnly assure you, or amen, amen, I say you. So the implied question in verse two, Three, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he can't see the kingdom of God. And in verse four, and the first answer, second time into his mother's womb, number one, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse nine, he said to him, how can this be? born of the Spirit. Jesus said to him, uh, are you a teacher of Israel? You don't understand this? Truly, truly, I say to you. We speak of what we know. Um, bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. Okay. So 
Basically, Jesus is answering like three questions here. The three answers are progressively longer. First is short, and the next one is a little bit longer. The third one is much, much longer. There's a development in thought. And also a reference to the three divine agents. Namely, Father, Son, and Spirit. The words of Jesus in verse 3 concern the role of the Spirit. Verses 11 to 15 concern the Son of Man. Verses 16 to 21 concern God the Father. So, uh, now there are two parts to this discussion or dialogue or exposition. First part, verses 2 to 8. And the second part is verses 9 to 21. Now, the point of verses 2 to 8 is that beginning from on high through the Spirit, is necessary for entrance into the kingdom of God. So beginning from on high through the spirit is necessary for entrance into the kingdom of God. Natural birth is insufficient. Verses two and three. He deals with the fact of begetting from on high. So he says, He went true to, I say, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you have to be begotten from on high to get into the kingdom of God. And then verses 4 to 8 deal with the question how one is begotten through the Spirit. Two and three says you have to be begotten by the Spirit to gain the kingdom of heaven. And the second tells you how you can be begotten by the Spirit, verses four to eight. Then the second part of the dialogue, verses 9 to 21, explains how all of this is made possible. The Spirit can beget you, and you can enter the kingdom of God. All this is made possible only when the Son has ascended to the Father. And it's offered only to those who believe in Jesus. So verses 9 to 10 introduce this second part. It's there. You can even say, how can this be? Is 
Zanzibar, are you a teacher of Israel, yet you don't understand this? To the truth, I say to you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven. He who descended from heaven is son of man, but he who descended from heaven is son of man. Moses lifted up there in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. Whoever believes in a man have eternal life. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But God sent the son into the world not to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not condemned, who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. All right, so verses 11 to 15 there. We speak of what we know, bear witness to what we've seen. I've told you. These things you don't believe. How can you, uh, if you don't believe these earthly things, how can you believe heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So the Son of Man must ascend to the Father in order for the Spirit to be given. And then uh, belief in Jesus is necessary to profit from this gift. Uh, so of the world, it is only son whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In other words, enter the kingdom of heaven. So the whole thing there is basically, uh, the first part is about, uh, if you want to gain the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born from on high. How can you get born from on high? Well, through the spirit. Okay. And how do you get the spirit that will help you to be born from on high? Well, that can only happen when Jesus ascends back to his Father and then returns to give his spirit. We know that happens on Easter Sunday night, right? Jesus appears and he breathes on them and says, so So it's only at that point that that can take place. So this Nicodemus story gives you a whole scenario of that. Okay, a couple of interesting things. Um, Jesus points out, he says, aren't you a teacher of Israel? Did you don't understand this? Earlier in verse 2, this man came to Jesus Nicodemus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you were a teacher who come from God. So Nicodemus is saying, we know you were a teacher who come from God. What is Jesus saying? Aren't you a teacher of your people? And you don't know these things? Jesus says, I know what I'm talking about because I've come from heaven to explain to you what God the Father wants. You're supposed to be a teacher to explain the ways of God to your people. You don't understand this? So, he says, uh, we know what we are talking about. He says, uh, I said, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen. But you don't receive our testimony. So he says, you know, I know what I'm talking about. Because these are things that the Father has sent me to reveal to you. Now, also, the whole incident or narrative is held together by an inclusion. Again, we know what an inclusion is, right? Begins, and it ends. It's like a bookend. So what happens? How does this thing begin? Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And how does this story end? 
Everyone who does evil, excuse me, this is the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does what is true comes to the light, and it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been wrought in God. So the discourse begins with Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. We know what that means. That's a symbol of evil, life without God. Okay? So it begins with the theme that people have to leave the darkness and come to the light. Right? Nicodemus was in the darkness at night, and he comes to the light. Same thing with people who are evil. You have to leave behind that in order to come into the light. Okay, so night symbolizes the realm of evil, untruth, and ignorance. Judas leaves the light to go out into the night of Satan. Nicodemus, though, comes out of the darkness into the light. Judas is the reverse. He leaves the light to go into darkness. Nicodemus is the reverse of that. He leaves the night to come into the light of Jesus. Nicodemus opens the conversation by having Jesus, by naming Jesus or hailing him as a teacher who has come from, from God. The last part of the discourse is it shows that Jesus is God's only son, whom God sent into the world, as a life for the world. So he's a teacher in the best sense. Now, just we'll uh, go into a little bit deeper discussion in verses 3 to 8, 2 to 8, really. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, but no one can do these signs uh, that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He even said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do you not know, marvel that I say to you, you must be born anew? Now, what should, have, should Nicodemus have been able to understand you know, in terms of what Jesus was saying? Now, Nicodemus' approach to Jesus is well-intentioned, but it's theologically inadequate. Jesus' answer in verse 3 seems to treat Nicodemus' greeting as an implicit request about entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, we go back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 18. The incident of the man coming to Jesus. A ruler asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments, etc. Okay. So the question is, What must I do to inherit eternal life? So here, that seems to be the implied question that Jesus is answering here. He says, uh, Truly, truly, I say, unless one is born anew, he can't see the kingdom of God. 
that seems to be the question. It's not mentioned here that Nicodemus asks, how can I call you a teacher? And the same thing here in 18. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Here Nicodemus addresses Jesus as teacher, and he's asking him implied, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus is saying, unless one is born anew, he can't see the kingdom of God. That's the fact. So, uh, then Jesus remarks in Luke how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. But in both cases, the approach to Jesus in faith is looked upon as a desire to enter the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. Now, the answer made by Jesus is meant to show Nicodemus that Jesus did, has not come from God in the sense that Nicodemus thought. He says, uh, I know you're a teacher. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, because no one can do these signs uh, that you do unless God is with him. Now, what he means by that is uh, he's come from God in the sense that God has kind of appointed him as a teacher or a prophet. He's a man approved by God. But Jesus is trying to say, I'm not just that, someone upon whom God has put his approval. It's in the unique sense of having descended from God's presence in order to raise men to God. So he says, you know, you can't do these signs unless God is with him. Yeah, God is with him because he's come down from God. He's going to go back to God. So the, the tactic of this discourse here is always for the answer to transpose the topic to a higher level. How he enters this world. So a man takes on flesh and enters the kingdom of the earthly world because his father begets him. A man can enter the kingdom of God only when he's begotten by a heavenly father. So natural birth happens when you're begotten by a human father. Heavenly birth happens when you're begotten by a heavenly father. Life can come to a man only from his father. Eternal life can come from the heavenly father through the son when he's empowered to give that life. So that's basically what he's saying. I mean, the reason you're here in this world is because a human father begot you. Okay, so you're in. human father is responsible for you living in this human existence in this earthly world. 
Okay. How do you get into the kingdom of heaven? Well, you have to be begotten by a heavenly father. That makes you part of now the kingdom of heaven. And who can give you uh, that new life? But the son. Now, another misunderstanding involved in the Gideon says, okay, I have to be born anew. Okay. How can I be born when, if I'm old? Am I supposed to enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born? Is that what we're talking about here? Okay. So he misunderstands what Jesus said about begetting from above and thinks of coming forth from the womb again. Now, the, the problem is, is that the word, there's a play on words there. The Greek word, anothen, A-N-O-T-H-E-N, can mean either again or from above. Okay, so that double meaning here is part of the technique of the misunderstanding. Nicodemus takes Jesus to mean again, whereas Jesus' primary meaning is from above. Not that you have to be born again, you have to be born from above. Now, there's a limited Old Testament background that should have helped Nicodemus understand that Jesus was proclaiming the arrival of the eschatological times when men would become God's children. That's when you would become God's children at the end of time. The concept was known to Judaism. Even if the theme of divine beginning hadn't been uh, until then received much emphasis. Okay, we know, for instance, uh, the anointed king, the Messiah, God's people, was hailed as the Son of God. The term beginning appears in Psalm 2 to describe the anointing of the king. After the exile, the pious individual Israelites were designated as sons of God. Sometimes as a future reward. And we also know the synoptics seem to regard sonship, becoming a child of God, as a promise to be realized only after death. So, for instance, the Beatitudes. Peacemaker shall be called. Okay, when is that going to happen? In the future, in the future, in the kingdom of heaven, okay? So, this is something that's going to happen later. It's going to be realized only after a person's death. But for John, sonship is realized here on this earth. Once the resurrected Jesus gives his spirit, then you become a child of God or son of God when you receive God's spirit through the son. Now, Christian theology has reconciled these differing viewpoints recognizing that future life in the presence of God is different in manner and intensity from the life we possess now, but not different in kind. If we are sons of God now, that's what John is saying, though after death we will be sons in a more perfect manner. For the synoptics, good acts make a person like God. Perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But 
that's the synoptics. Good acts make a person like God, and that for his family. You resemble your father. When you forgive, like your father, you resemble your father. But Jesus, excuse me, John, though, speaks of begetting by God. It's not something you can happen by doing good works. John says, this is all the action of God. You become a child of God, a son of God, only because it's a gift from God. So it's precisely on the theme of begetting that Nicodemus stumbles. His misunderstanding causes Jesus in verses 5 following to explain further. And then in the first letter of John, uh, he uses the metaphor of God's seed to explain how God begets sons. But here John uses the concept of spirit. Now, the Hebrew notion of spirit or breath of life the ancient Hebrew, the breath of the spirit is the principle of life. Man is both flesh and spirit. But man's spirit is perishable. It is the agency of God's spirit that keeps man alive. So, for instance, in the book of Genesis, God gives life to man when he breathes in him breath of life at creation. And the death occurs when God takes back his breath or spirit. So if natural life is due to God's giving spirit to men, so eternal life begins when God gives his Holy Spirit to men. So the beginning through the spirit, here in verse 5, seems to refer to the outpouring of the Spirit through Jesus when he has been lifted up in crucifixion and resurrection. When you go to the end of John's Gospel, the resurrected Jesus speaks of his disciples as his brothers. Chapter 20, verse 17. In the Holy Tribe, not yet ascended to the Father. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Jesus speaks of his disciples as his brothers and tells them that his Father is now their Father. Because he breathes on them, they were created by the Holy Spirit that they would receive from the Father. Three verses there, when he said this, he breathed on them and says, and received the Holy Spirit. All right, so a little bit dense. Do you follow so far? Now, how could Nicodemus have understood this begetting of the Spirit? Well, the pouring forth of God's Spirit was an important feature in the Old Testament especially regarding the last days. Isaiah chapter 32, he talks about the coming of those times, describing them as the Spirit is poured on us from on high. That's what's going to happen in the final days, in eschatological time. The Spirit will be poured on us from on high. But Joel chapter 2 says, in those days, I'll pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Those days meaning the final days. 
Okay, here in John chapter 3, the themes of water and spirit are joined. In Ezekiel chapter 36, Yahweh says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, a new heart I will give you, a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you. Again, talking about the future. So while Nicodemus could not have been expected to understand the particular aspect of the spirit was proper to Jesus' teaching, at least Jesus' words should have meant for him that the eschatological outpouring of the spirit was at hand, preparing man for entrance into God's kingdom. God's kingdom was about to arrive, as the end times, God's spirit would be poured out upon people. Also, you have this dualism in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So you have this dualistic contrast between flesh and spirit. Just like begetting in an earthly sense, it's contrasted with begetting from above. Now, what does Jesus mean when he contrasts flesh and spirit? It's the contrast between mortal man and someone who is a son of God. Flesh refers to a person as a mortal being. Spirit refers to a person as a son of God. Contrast between man as he is, earthly human being, and man as Jesus can make him by giving him the Holy Spirit, what a person can become. It's a spiritual person. The difference between flesh and spirit. In verses 17, Jesus says there's something mysterious about this begetting from above through the spirit. And he speaks in a simile. Not to explain the precise character of the mystery he's explaining, but to show that the fact of mystery doesn't in any way take away from the reality of the Spirit's action. Now here again, another play on words. Ruah, in Hebrew, noima, noima, in Greek. Both mean, what do you know? Noima, spirit, ruin, same thing, it's the Hebrew word. Spirit. It also can mean wind. The word rule, depending on the context, can mean either wind or spirit. So there's a clever play on both meanings here. Wind is to be primary meaning in this comparison. So here Jesus says, the wind blows where it wills. You know the sound of it. But you do not know whence it comes or to where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So what is he saying? Can you see wind? How do you know it's windy out? You see the facts. The leaves are blowing, or dust is going up. You know, all that uh, on your face, you feel all that. So you know that the wind is present through the effects that you see. How do you know that the spirit is present in a person? Can you see the spirit? Do you know when the person gets the spirit? 
All you can know the presence, uh, the presence of spirit is by its effects, the difference it makes in a human being. So this, this comparison using wind and spirit, okay, just as you can't see wind, you can't see the spirit. How do you know wind is present? Through the effects it brings about. How do you know the spirit is present in an individual? The effects you know, it has in a person's life. So it's not surprising that being begotten through the spirit is mysterious. Although you can't see the effects of wind all about you, same thing with the spirit. You can't see the spirit. You only see the effects it causes. So too, a person can see those who were begotten from above through the spirit, those who accepted Jesus, without seeing just when or how this spirit begot them, without knowing why one man accepts Jesus and another doesn't. The inability of a person to know where the noima or wind comes from or where it goes is similar to ignorance of human beings about where God comes from and where he is going. We talked about this idea of uh, the hidden Messiah. I thought you know, certain people knew that be born of the house of David from Bethlehem. Others said Messiah is supposed to come out of nowhere, suddenly appear, etc. So again, this idea, you don't know where the wind comes from, where it's going, same thing with the spirit. You don't know where it came, when it came to a person and where it's heading. Now the early Christians, when they were reading the story, uh, would have interpreted verse five, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. They would interpret that as a reference to Christian baptism. Now there are some scholars that say they think that the insertion of water is something later. Why? Because it kind of disrupts the pattern. All along he's been talking about receiving the spirit, what the spirit is going to do, need to receive it, etc. All of a sudden he said, unless one is born of water and the spirit, before he says you have to be begotten by the spirit, right? Now he talks about begotten by water and the spirit. Now there's, there's really not a problem because in many, many verses in the Old Testament, they join both of them, outpouring of spirit and water. Other passages of John's Gospel, water and the Spirit, are joined together in chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. It says there, uh, six. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, this part of rivers of living water. And we say this about the spirit. We about the spirit as what? A river of living water. So, you know, if water hadn't even been mentioned there, there would have still thought of that as a reference to uh, the Holy Spirit and baptism. 
So, really, the baptismal motif is woven into this text. The phrase, uh, unless one is born of water and the spirit, it expresses the baptismal motif uh, more concretely. Although originally may not have a specific reference to Christian baptism, the phrase has been added to the tradition later in order to bring out the baptismal motif, to make sure that you understood what Jesus was saying. You need to be, to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born from on high, from the Spirit. Uh, how do you get born from the Spirit? How do you enter the kingdom of God? By being begotten of the Spirit. So, uh, Take a look at verse 9 to 15. So we've had, first of all, that to be begotten by the Spirit. And the second thing is about uh, the Son. Okay? You're going to receive this gift from the Son. He's the one that's come down from heaven okay, to reveal to people that you need to receive the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so you have the Son, the Spirit, the Son, now the references is God the Father. So, so far, Nicodemus has heard that entrance into God's kingdom requires the eschatological outpouring of the Spirit. And it's something that man cannot accomplish on his own. On his own. In verse 9, Nicodemus asks another question. Not about man's role, but about the action of God from above. And through the Spirit, with this question. How can this be? How can you receive the Spirit? So the action of God from above and through the Spirit, Big Demon says, like so many other characters in John's discourses, he served kind of as a foil. This misunderstanding or a failure to understand Jesus allows Jesus to explain his revelation more in detail. Jesus now launches into a long explanation. And he's just so Nicodemus kind of fades into the background. The dialogue becomes a monologue. So, beginning through the Spirit can come about only as a result of Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. He says, For the gospel of the world gave his only Son, and that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And right before that, he says, uh, I told you earthly, If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
So, lifted up to serve in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that who believes in him may have eternal life. Believes in him what? When he is lifted up. So he's talking about the uh, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Now, the first of these statements is the first time John refers to Jesus being lifted up. The phrase to be lifted up refers to Jesus' death on the cross here. Just as Moses lifts up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But who believes in him may have eternal life. So that refers to Jesus' death on the cross. So it's clear also from the comparison with the servant on the pole and from the explanation in chapter 12, verse 33. 12:33, Jesus talks about himself. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show by what death he was to die. So again, being lifted up refers to his death. So Jesus has to die first, okay, and return to his Father, in order for him to give the gift of the Spirit, to allow people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here in John 3.14, as Moses lifted up the servant of the Lord, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. All right, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The Greek word there is dei, D-E-I. And that's a word uh, that indicates God's will. The must means this is part of God's will. Mark's gospel says the same thing. The Son of Man must be suffer, handed over, said it must. Why? Must is this is part of God's plan. The must. Same thing here. Replies to Son of Man must be lifted up. So the divine will is uh, implied here and indicated here. Son of Man must suffer many things. That's just not the gospel saying. He must be killed. After three days, rise again. So the statement, the Son of Man must be lifted up, reflects the theme that his being lifted up was predicted in Scripture. Where was it predicted in Scripture? Where is the suffering predicted in the Bible? Isaiah. Isaiah, right. Old Testament. The suffering servant. That was part of God's will, that his servant would suffer for the sake of other people. So Jesus is being lifted up will lead to the gift of eternal life to all who believe in Jesus. But it's not just necessarily Jesus' death and resurrection. We'll allow you to be gotten by the Spirit. We'll allow Jesus to give the Spirit. It's only going to be given to those who believe in Jesus. This eternal life is the life of the sons of God. The life begotten from above. The life begotten of the Spirit. So, when Jesus will be lifted up in crucifixion and ascension, his communication of the Spirit will constitute a flowing source of life for those who believe in okay, A few other things here. Uh, there's so much in this particular passage. 
16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent the son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of his only son of God. So now here, the role of God the Father becomes prominent. And also the name of Jesus is dead, under the symbol of the serpent. Now you go back to the book of Genesis. Abraham was commanded to take his only son Isaac, whom he loved, to offer to the Lord. Now we indicate how much Abraham loved God, right? He was willing to give up his only son. So now you hear God so loved the world that he gave his only son. A similar comparison. Gave refers not only to God gave his son to the world through what? What was the first giving of his son? Incarnation, right. So Jesus came down from heaven, took flesh. Okay, that was the Father's gift to the world. God sent the Son into the world. It also refers to the crucifixion. God gave his Son up to death. The idea of being lifted up. Okay, and a suffering servant who's lifted up for their sins. So God's love is expressed both in the incarnation and in the death and resurrection of Jesus. God's love of the world that he gave his only son, the incarnation. So that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Verse 16 tells, assures us that the purpose of the Father's giving the Son in the incarnation is the eternal life of the believer. That's why God sent Jesus into the world and why you know, he allowed him to suffer on the cross was that we who believe might have eternal life. That's in verse 16. And whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But the next verse for God sent the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So here in verse 17, we enter into the realm of realized eschatology. The very presence of Jesus in the world is a judgment in the sense that it provokes people to judge themselves by deciding either for Jesus or against him. So God came into the world to save individuals. He also came into the world to save the world. to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through it. Now he says, he who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already, because he hasn't believed in the name of the only Son of God. So what kind of eschatology do you have there? He who believes in him is not condemned. Okay. This is called realized eschatology. It's happening right here and now. God sent the Son into the world not to get the world, but the world might be saved through him. 
he who believes in him is not condemned. So the judgment, when is judgment or condemnation coming? Right now. Okay, he's not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already. In other words, he's condemned at this particular moment, not necessarily at the end. Something that happens at the end of time is called future eschatology. Something that happens here and now is realized eschatology. It's happening here and now. You have a difference here between chapter 3 and chapter 12 in John's Gospel. Chapter 3 here, come into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in, excuse me, Slides come into the world that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Everyone who believes in him may not perish. God did not send the world to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. Where he does not believe has already been condemned. That is present uh, or realized eschatology. When you go to chapter 12, you have, uh, I have come as light into the world, and whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Anyone hears Anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He rejects me and does not receive my sayings as a judge. The words I have spoken will be his judge on the last day. So that's talking about future eschatology. For I have not spoken on my own authority. The Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. So we have these two senses of eschatology in John's Gospel. One is that Jesus is saying, belief in Jesus now, okay, you are not being condemned. You are receiving the beginnings of eternal life. doesn't have to wait until you die. Condemnation doesn't have to wait until you die. Or judgment doesn't have to wait until you die. You are undergoing judgment now by rejecting Jesus and not believing him. That rejection is confirmed at the end, but that judgment is taking place right here and now. You're undergoing that through the things that you decide and do right here and now. And so, you know, when you think of the synoptics as being the same as John, it isn't. You see the difference in eschatology. And the same thing, you only become a son of God when you enter the kingdom of heaven. Whereas in John's gospel, you become a son of God when you receive the Spirit, and that takes place in baptism. So in Mark, it's uh, a post-resurrectional statement referring to future judgment. John, he talks now about believing, it's in the context of realized eschatology. Future eschatology means the end time, final judgment. Okay, realized eschatology means this is happening, the start of it is beginning right here and now. And you also notice in uh, the end of chapter three here, you have this dualistic vocabulary. This is a judgment. The light has come into the world. The men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Darkness and light, evil deeds. One who does evil hates the light, doesn't come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. He who does what is true comes to the light. And it may be clearly seen his deeds have been what in God. So you have this dualistic vocabulary, typical of John, contrast between light and darkness, those practicing wickedness and those doing the truth. 
and that dualistic vocabulary is reminiscent of uh, some of the writings that you find in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So in John's Gospel, there's a twofold reaction to Jesus. And the reaction is very dependent upon a person's own choice. A choice that's influenced by his way of life, whether his deeds are wicked, whether they're done in God. Evildoers, as far as John is concerned, are disbelievers. Our good works and faith go together. So a believer does good works, evildoer, a disbeliever does evil works. And then the final point he makes here is that a man doesn't really come to Jesus to have it confirmed that his deeds are good. Rather, the idea is that Jesus brings out what a man really is, the real nature of his life. So, for instance, what he's saying is that Jesus is a penetrating light that provokes judgment by making it apparent what a man is. So when a person comes into the light that is Jesus, okay, He's seen for what he is. He's a good person or a bad person. Okay? So if that person is in the light of Christ, he'll walk in the light, he'll radiate light. But if his life is evil, okay, uh, he's not going to go to where the light is. Why? Because it will show him up to be a person in darkness, a person in sin, a person who's practicing witnesses. So uh, a person who does evil hates the light. Why? Because the light is going to show him up for what he is, an evil person. That's what Jesus is saying here. Okay. Someone who turns away is not an indication. No sinner, but someone who practices wickedness. So you don't go near the light because you don't want to be exposed for who you are. You go to the light to allow the light to reveal basically a good person does what is true, comes to the light, and be completely seeing his deeds and his deeds have been what in God. Uh, next thing I'm going to do is the uh, married woman of the world. What I'm going to do is give you the break now so I don't start that and go. So I'll give you till 20 after 8. And the second part of the class will do. Also, you should have those notes on the Samaritan woman. Probably. Okay? So if you have them, take them out and you can follow along. Save you a lot of writing. Add whatever comments you want. So I have to print it. A lot of my uh, material I have for you so that you'll be able to cover. So I'll give you a 12 minute break and then we'll do the. Uh, Did hoping to save you a little bit of time and uh, you know be able to refer to it clearly. Okay, now I see well, you talked about it in the beginning. What does John do? But he creates, develops things into uh, a drama or a scene. You have uh, Nicodemus, a whole chapter three. Dialogue, you know, and the questions back and forth, misunderstandings, etc., in order to explain to him uh, how can you get into the kingdom of heaven. 
in the intricate way that we talked about misunderstandings, etc. Here in chapter four, you have the story of the Samaritan woman. It's a whole chapter. Now, you notice on those pages I have the scene or the incident, which is verses four to twenty-six, is divided into two sections. First section deals with living water. And the second section deals with true worship of the Father. <coughs> Thank you. Now the first section, scene 1A, consists of two short dialogues, three exchanges. Verse 7, okay. Jesus initiates the dialogue. says, uh, He came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, in the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, weary as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Here's the opening start of the dialogue. Jesus asked the Samaritan woman for water. In doing so, he violates the social customs of his time. What were those customs? He was not speak to a woman. Samaritan. Not speak to a woman, nor to a Samaritan. Okay, so you have both things there. So he violates the social customs of his time and he, and when he initiates this particular dialogue. Then uh, he explains, uh, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. That's why he's alone there. Then the next thing is verse 9. The woman mocks Jesus for being so in need that he doesn't observe the customary proprieties. In other words, she's saying to him, you've got to be desperate. Talk to me, a woman, not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman. So she says, then, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, so the next thing is in verse 10. Jesus shows that the real reason for his action, for asking for water, is not his inferiority or need, but his superior status. says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he's explained to him, you know, it's not, I'm not desperate. There's no need on my part. But I, you have a chance to receive something superior from me. And he issues her a two-part challenge. He says, uh, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So what is he saying? Did you see in those notes that I gave it? If she recognizes who is speaking to her, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. In other words, if you only knew who I am, 
then you would ask me for water. The, the, table, the tables would be turned. So that first part, the first dialogue there, you have Jesus initiating, the woman answering, and then uh, Jesus explaining the reason for his request. So he asks her for water, you know, violates the customs of the time. You know, she kind of laughs at him and said, you've got to be, you know, desperate. You know, you're violating talking to a woman, first of all, and then I'm, I'm, as a Jew, you're talking to a Samaritan. And now the second part there. Uh, you have another dialogue or exchange. Have you noticed it's in reverse? Whereas Jesus initiated the first dialogue in verse 7, and the woman answers, and Jesus explains, you have the flip now. Here it is, the woman takes the lead on this. So she says in verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, yeah. and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? <laughs> Put your hands in, it's going to go through your fingers. You know, well, if you're going to give me water, how? You know, you got nothing to draw the water from. Besides that, the well is deep. If you reach down, you wouldn't be able to reach the water. So the woman misunderstands the water on a material, earthly level. She thinks that Jesus is talking about the water that's in that well. And just like Nicodemus, again, he's dealing with human birth, rebirth, etc. Here the woman is uh, in the same earthly level. And so she misunderstands Jesus as less than Jacob. So are you greater than our father Jacob? Gave us the well and drank from himself and his sons and his cattle? So, so there are two things that she misunderstands the level in which Jesus is talking, what kind of water. It's not just the water, well water, it's talking about a water that he can give, a spiritual water. And then she says to him, uh, you know, you can't be greater than Jacob. Well, she's got to find out that he is. So she initiates the dialogue in this part. And Jesus is the one that answers. And he clarifies that he's speaking of heavenly water of eternal life. He says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he's explaining, she's, he's explaining her misunderstanding. That she's thinking in terms of well water that he's going to provide for her. She, uh, she just clarifies he's speaking not of the water that's in that well, but of a heavenly water that will lead to eternal life that he can give. I should give him. Water I will give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And now at the end, woman intrigues, asks for water. He says, woman says, sir, give me this water so I may not thirst nor have to come back here to draw. That would be fabulous. I wouldn't have to come back to this well. I have water. You know, unending water, eternal water, etc. It's fabulous. So, what does Jesus have uh, uh, has succeeded in doing? Remember, his challenge was that she only recognized who he was, and the second thing, she would ask him for living water. So, what is she doing here? Asking for water. So, he's already achieved, accomplished one of his two aims. Part of that challenge. Okay.
the second scene. That also consists of two short dialogues, each with three exchanges. Now, here again, Jesus takes the initiative. He leaves the woman to recognize who he is referring, referring her to her personal life. Again, who he is referring to her personal life. He said to her, go call your husband, come here. When answered him, I had no husband. She said to him, you're right in saying you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and he who you have now is not your husband. This he said, truly. Yeah, in other words, you're living with some guy who's not your husband, but you've been married some, X number of times already. So uh, he's challenging her recognize who he is by referring to her personal life. Now, think back. Uh, earlier in John's Gospel, someone was amazed by what Jesus said about him, knew, knew something about him already. Right, Nathaniel, right? Only a prophet could have that kind of knowledge. You know, you know something about me. So Jesus is saying, I know something about you. You haven't, we haven't talked before, we haven't met before. I know, I know all about you. Well, so that's indicating to our, that this is someone from God, it's a prophet. How can he know, you know, uh, all this, the stories of my life? Now in verse 17, the woman gives an ambiguous, even deceptive answer. Instinctively reacting to Jesus' moral probing. Jesus is getting too close, okay? She says, uh, I said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. How could she say that? Because of his knowledge about it. Okay. Uh, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. So, okay, I'm just I'm skipping here a bit. Uh, if woman gives a deceptive answer. She said, I had no husband. And then Jesus uh, you know, answers by saying, yeah, I know you have no husband. The guy you live with is who has previous husbands before. So he uses his answer to uncover her evil deeds. Now, so we heard back in chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, in the end of the Nicodemus story, those whose deeds are evil don't come near the light, lest their deeds be exposed. That's what the light that Christ is going to do. If you are a bad person, you come near the light, you're going to be seen for who you are. If you're a good person, you're going to be seen for who you are. But if you're a bad person, likewise. So if you don't want people to see who you really are, you're not going to go near the light. So. Uh, now, the dialogue back in 16 to 18 constitutes the crucial moment of judgment. Will this woman turn her back on the light? In other words, Jesus is getting very close you know, to the core of her life, you know, saying to her, really spilling out you know, her lurid past. What is she going to do? Not go near Jesus, go away from him, because I don't want this part of me to be seen. All right? So, in verses 19 to 20, the woman, though, looks to the light, although she would divert the rays away from her life to something less personal. So she broaches the topic of worship. In other words, 
Let's not talk about me. Let's talk about where you and I as people worship God. So, you know, she tries to keep him from continuing the probe into her personal life. So she wants to move the discussion away to something more abstract, in a sense, maybe more spiritual. So she's beginning hesitantly to think on a spiritual or heavenly level, although still a lot of earthly concepts. So in 19 and 20 there, woman says, sir, I perceive you were a prophet, okay? Uh, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You say Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Okay, so Jews, where was the place of worship? Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, okay, now he answers her. He explains that true worship can come only from those begotten by the spirit of truth. So he says to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. You worship what we do. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such the Father seeks to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What is Jesus saying basically here? It's not going to make any difference where you worship, whether in Jerusalem or the mountain that you as Samaritans say. What's going to be important is worship coming from someone begotten by the spirit, someone who is born from above, someone who is spiritual. So those will be the true worshipers. He says, uh, "Our is coming when true worship will worship the Father in spirit and in truth." So now it's not going to be the place where you're worshiping. It's going to be who is it that's doing the worshiping? Are you someone who is pleasing to God? Are you begotten by the Spirit? Then you can worship in spirit and in truth if you're begotten by the Spirit. So. Uh, now, again, he moves her from, you know, the earthly, sensible thing of the place to the realm of the person's heart. In verse 25, 26, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will show us all things. Jesus said to her, I will speak to you at he. So, you know, she's talking about the Messiah, and now... He's revealing himself who he is. So you have those two parts of the challenges. What did Jesus hope to set out through this dialogue with her? One, she recognized who it is that's speaking to her. And the second thing is that she would ask him for living water. Water for eternal life. So, so the other part of the challenge made back in verse 10 has now been answered. So the second part of scene one led the woman to ask for water. Second part of scene 1B of the woman to recognize who he is who asked her for a drink, namely, Ego Ami, I am who am, which is the name of God. Basically, the story is a drama of a soul struggling to rise from the things of this world to belief in Jesus. And only the Samaritan woman, every person, is going to recognize who it is that speaks when Jesus speaks. 
Just ask Jesus for living water. Okay, so Jesus says, He who hears me hears the Father. He who sees me sees the Father. Okay, so it's uh, important to recognize who Jesus is. He's the Word of God, He was God, He was the way, the truth, and the life, all those things. And that we ask Jesus for the things that will enable us to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, water in the spirit, or living water here in, in uh, the Samaritan woman's story. Yeah. All right. So that at least is a little bit of an outline to see how And it's amazing to see, as they say, scene 1A, Jesus starts, the woman answers, Jesus concludes that first step. Second, a woman's question. Jesus answers it. A woman answers it. Scene 1B, back to Jesus initiating the woman, and then Jesus answering at the end of it. And the final segment, there's the woman. Does the talking. Jesus explains about true worship. And finally, recognize, she recognizes who Jesus is. So, you know, if you were a, a literary critic, somebody told you, uh, an illiterate guy who wrote this, it is you know, somebody who's well educated, etc., able to construct. You know, the same thing with Nicodemus leading the dialogue on, get more and more and more. All right, now living water. What was Jesus referring to when he spoke of living water to the woman? Now. Clearly, living water is not Jesus himself. It's something spiritual that he offers to the believer who can recognize God's gift. So, for instance, uh, verses 10 to 14, okay? So, he says to her in, in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to give me a drink, you would have asked him, he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, the well is deep. And he talks about uh, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Or who drinks of the water that I shall give him also will thirst. The water I shall give become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So what is he saying? Is the water eternal life? It's, it will spring up uh, water. Okay, it will become in a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's something that will bring a person to eternal life. So the living water isn't the gift of eternal life. It's something that a person will have that will lead them to that gift of, etern of eternal life. It's something spiritual that he offers to a believer. So the living water is not eternal life, but it leads to it. Use of the symbol of water shows how realistically John thought of eternal life. Water is to natural life, as living water is to eternal life. Water isn't water isn't life. It helps you preserve eternal life. Living water is not eternal life in itself. It's something that leads to enables you to enjoy eternal life. <coughs> so now 
Living water, in a sense, can mean either the revelation which Jesus gives to human beings, or it can mean the spirit which Jesus gives to human beings. Regarding the first thing, it could either mean revelation which Jesus gives. In other words, Jesus is the truth. He gives God's truth so that you can uh, come to believe and see. So, it is a revelation. And living water is Jesus' revelation or teaching. The Old Testament uses the symbolism of water for God's wisdom that grants life. Many of your background in the Old Testament there were revelation of God it's a symbolism for wisdom that God grants, uh, wisdom that grants life. So, for instance, the book of Proverbs, verse, chapter 13, verse 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that a man may avoid the snares of death. Teaching okay, enables you to avoid the snares of death. Teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. Words from a man's mouth are deep water. The fountain of wisdom is a flowing brook. And the best Old Testament parallel for his first year in John 4.14 is the book of Sirach, chapter 24, where wisdom sings her own praises. He who eats of me will hunger still. He who drinks of me will thirst for more. Jesus says, he who drinks the water I will give shall never be thirsty. So one sense of understanding living water can refer to the revelation which Jesus gives. <clears throat> Excuse me. You have many parallels in the Old Testament way where uh, God's revelation and teaching is used in terms of wisdom. Now, since the scribes identified wisdom with the Torah, it's not surprising that the book of Sirach tells us that the Torah fills men with wisdom like rivers overflowing their banks. So the Torah is like rivers overflowing their banks. In other words, it's something that's nourishing, life-giving. The rabbis frequently spoke of water to refer to the law. Well, only really do they allegorize living water. Now that we have discovered a lot of the writings in Qumran, the clear evidence from their writings that they use that term living water to describe the law. And also, the expression gift of God that appears here in John 4.10 was used in rabbinic Judaism to describe the law. The law was God's gift to his people. Talk about uh, no other people like ours. We know what to do because we're guided by God's law. So it's very plausible for Jesus to refer to his own revelation as living water. Because in John, Jesus is presented as divine wisdom. He's a replacement of the law. Replaces in a, in a Canaan miracle. 
Christians love purification. Okay, so that's one understanding of what possibly Jesus meant by talking about living water. Could be the revelation, his teaching. Now, the second thing, living water, is the spirit communicated by Jesus. As we saw earlier in in the Nicodemus story, connection between water and spirit is frequent in the Old Testament. Unless you were born again of water and the spirit. In Qumran's skull there, like purifying waters, he will sprinkle upon him the spirit of truth. So you have waters, spirit of truth. The identification of living water as the spirit, you also have the specific evidence of John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. Let's see just a moment ago. Anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. And we said this about the Spirit, which those who believed in him were to receive, but as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So he talks about here, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. This he said about the Spirit. Second, Revelation is one possibility. Spirit is another possibility that living waters could refer to. The expression gift of God was an early Christian term for the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the apostles are told, Acts Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and all that are far off. So the gift and the Spirit, the gift of God, is the Holy Spirit. That's what the apostle was going to receive after Jesus left this world. The second part of the scene of the Samaritan woman explicitly introduces the theme of spirit. The gift of the spirit was the mark of the messianic days. The dialogue with Jesus leads the Samaritan woman to speak about the Messiah. So in the uh, end then she says, uh, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will show us all things. He said, I will speak to you of he. So the gift of spirit was the mark of the messianic days. That's what it prompted the uh, Samaritan woman to talk about Messiah. Now, really, just like, you know, in the uh, changing, uh, throwing the money changes out of the temple, trying to figure out which chronology is the most accurate and uh, truthful one uh, you have to place it at the beginning of Jesus ministry at the end there is a compromise that will make sense out of uh, that the same thing is here 
You don't have to choose between one interpretation or the other, whether the, the living water refers to the revelation or teaching of Jesus, or the refers to the spirit that Jesus will give to his people. Both meanings are most likely intended here. Symbolism in John's gospel is often ambivalent, especially where two closely related concepts like revelation and spirit are involved. The spirit of truth is the agent who interprets Jesus' revelation or teaching to humans. Remember, Jesus says, I will send you the Holy Spirit, what will he do? Guide you in all truth, he will explain to you what you don't understand now. So, the spirit is something that helps you understand God's revelation. So they're intertwined there. So, living water can mean spirit, as well as the revelation of God. Now, the question is, is there a secondary sacramental reference to baptism in this passage? Much as there was mention of water and spirit, remember in the Nicodemus story, unless you be born again, water and the spirit. But here the symbolism is a little different. It's not a birth through water, but the drinking of living water. Okay, in the Nicodemus story, you were born again through water and spirit. The drinking of the living water is not the same as being born again with water. But once we eliminate any direct equivalence of living water, it is the water of baptism. You have to ask whether or not the author intended the passage to remind us Christian readers of baptism. The teaching that one of the effects of baptism was the giving of the Spirit. Note that this discourse and the Nicodemus discourse are set almost in tandem was separated by the baptizing incident in chapter 3, 22 to 30. Okay, and that talks about Jesus and his disciples baptizing. After Jesus and his disciples went into the land of Judea, there he, there he remained with them and baptized. John also was baptizing. Because there was much water there, people came over baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. And a discussion arose between John's disciples and a Jew over purifying. Okay, we'll talk about it. Baptist. Okay. So you have the story of Nicodemus and the story of the Samaritan woman. And in between, like the next section, is the story about, or the reports about John the Baptist and Jesus going about baptizing. So uh, the transition to the Samaritan discourse here brings up a reference to Jesus as baptizing. So these indications would strongly favor an affirmative answer to the question of whether there's a baptismal reference here. The fact that the water is to be drunk is not a major obstacle. If you remember 1 Corinthians 12, 13, here Paul says, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So there's a good possibility that baptismal motive was intended in this discourse. And now we get to the second thing, worship in spirit and truth. What does that mean? First question was, what does living water mean? Revelation of the spirit. Here now, what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? 
Chapter 4, verse 23, particular point in question shifts from the place of worship to the manner of worship. Most U.S. scholars agree that in proclaiming worship in spirit and truth, Jesus isn't contrasting external worship with internal worship. In other words, he's not uh, saying that, uh, you know, opposing liturgical worship, etc., with internal prayers, internal worship. So he's not, you know, having one clash with the other. Okay, Satan has nothing to do with worshiping God in the inner recesses of one's own spirit. The spirit is the spirit of God, not the spirit of man. As verse 24 makes clear. 24 says, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay, so one can almost regard spirit and truth as an hendiades, equivalent to spirit of truth. It's just like in later uh, on in John's Gospel, which we proclaim in funerals, to about Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, that are not that's not necessarily coordinates, way and the truth and the life. I know a lot of preachers will do that, but it really means Jesus is the way because why? He tells us God's truth, and he gives us God's life. That's why he's the way. He's the truth. He tells the truth. His revelation is God's truth. Leads us to God, and also life. He gives us eternal life. So here again, the same thing. Spirit and truth could mean the spirit of truth. So ideal of purely internal worship doesn't fit well the New Testament scene with its Eucharistic gatherings, hymn singing, baptism, and water. Okay. We know the early church engaged in liturgical prayer and worship. So Jesus certainly is not saying, you know, that's out. You have to worship internally. No, that's not what he means by this uh, worship in spirit and truth. The contrast between worship in Jerusalem or on the Mount at Gerizim, which is where the Samaritans sat there, Center. Contrast between the two places, Jerusalem and Gerizim, and worship in spirit and truth is part of the familiar Johannine dualism between earthly and heavenly. Contrast between what's from below and what's from above. Contrast between flesh and spirit. So now, in all of these things, he's talking. The difference between something that's on a material, sensible level, and something that's on the spiritual, heavenly level. So from below, from above. From below means you've begotten in flesh, in the human world. From above means you've begotten by the heavenly Father, or the kingdom. Uh, in flesh and spirit, earthly and heavenly. If flesh is man as he is, man, simple man. Spirit is man as God intends him to be. Now Jesus is speaking of the eschatological replacement of temporal institutions like the temple. And he goes back to the theme in chapter 12, 2 verses 13 to 22 about destroy this temple. Okay? In chapter 2, 21, it was Jesus himself who 
was to take the place of the temple. Destroy this temple, build it up. Here it is, the spirit given by Jesus. That's to animate the worship that replaces worshiping at the temple. So it's not going to worship and offering sacrifices that is going to be pleasing to God. It's a person who uh, worships, you know, uh, on a level that is spiritual, that recognizes that God is his heavenly father, that he has new life and opportunity to enjoy the kingdom of heaven. It's that kind of person worships in spirit and truth. But notice it's a question of worshiping the Father in spirit. God can be worshiped as Father only by those who possess the spirit that makes them God's children. We said before, how, how are you begotten as a child of God? Through the spirit. So if you've been begotten by the spirit, you're a child of God, then you worship in the spirit. You have to possess the spirit to be able to worship in a spirit. The spirit by which God begets them is from above. And this spirit raises men above the earthly level, the level of flesh, enables them to worship God properly. Verse 24 joins spirit and truth. Verse 24, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now that's reminiscent of what you find later in the gospel in chapter 17. Here we'll hear that the truth is an agent of consecration and sanctification. So truth also enables man to worship God properly. Chapter 17, verses 17. That they are not of this world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Thou didst send me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be consecrated in truth. Okay, how are they consecrated in truth? Well, through the Spirit. Join our themes are closely intertwined. Jesus is the truth in the sense that he reveals God's truth to men. The spirit is the spirit of Jesus. And so it's the spirit of truth who is to guide men in the truth. So in this dialogue with the Samaritan woman, Jesus has revived and expanded themes that were treated earlier in the gospel about the temple, destroy the temple, I'll build up in three days, etc. Back in chapter 2, then talk about water and the spirit in a dialogue with Nicodemus. So he, he comes back to a dialogue and talks about living water, okay, worship and spirit and truth here. All right, now the end of the this dialogue with the Samaritan woman is scene 2. Scene 1 was with the Samaritan woman. Scene 2 now is a dialogue with Jesus' disciples. Okay, and as I say here, it's scene that was also carefully constructed. Scene one, which is with the woman, 
told how Jesus came to the woman and led her to faith. With a short introduction to scene two, verses 27 to 30, plays out backstage in the village. In the case, this scene will concern the coming of men to Jesus. Not Jesus to the woman, it's now men coming to Jesus. So while Jesus opened the dialogue in scene one, the disciples open the dialogue here in scene two. <laughs> so what do you have here? Just then, his disciples came. They marveled that he was speaking with a woman, but none of them said, what do you wish? Well, why are you talking with her? The woman left her water jar, went away into the city, and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ, the Messiah? He went out of the city, and we're coming to it. Now we have people coming to Jesus. And meanwhile, the disciples began to be sort of saying, Rabbi, eat. He said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him food? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So the misunderstanding about food in these first lines here resembles the misunderstanding about water in verses 7 to 11. You know, you're going to give me water? You know, uh, Jesus says, you know, eat, you know, must be hungry. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. So in each instance with the Samaritan woman and now with the disciples, Jesus is speaking on a spiritual level, while the other party is speaking on the material level. And in each instance, the misunderstanding leads Jesus to clarify what he means. The explanation of Jesus' food is his mission, leads rather naturally into the extension of the metaphor in terms of the harvest. That is, the fruit of his mission is now represented by the Samaritans who are coming to him. So again, the disciples, just like the Samaritan woman, misunderstand Jesus. Woman doesn't understand, you know, your water to give me, you have no bucket, the well is deep, how can you do this? Disciples said, you know, you need to eat. He says, uh, I have food to eat of which you don't know. I'm saying, I'm going to food. He's hungry, he's full already. So he said, no, no, my food is to do the will who sent me. So he's not talking about material food. He's talking about sense, spiritual food. In other words, I am filled when I do what the Father expects me to do. My spiritual hunger is satisfied when I do what the Father uh, asked me or planned for me to do. Substance in verses 35 to 38. This is kind of, I always... When I heard this in years, I never quite understood what was going on here. Cycle said to one another, can you see food? Jesus said to them, can you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes and see how the fields are already white for harvest. He who reaps, he sees wages and gathers fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. 
These are two little parables or sayings that, you know, until I started studying the Gospel of John, never quite understood. But what's going on here? The first parable says, "There are yet four months. Do you not say? Then comes the harvest. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see how the fields are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages, gathers fruit for eternal life. So sower and reaper may rejoice together." So. In this first proverb that Jesus talks about, okay, is something he says isn't true. It's the validity of it he's denying. The second proverb he is accepting, he's affirming. Now, the first proverb has to do with the interval that nature has established between sowing and harvesting. I'm no farmer, but I know, you know, farmers have to plant seed in their fields, and they have to cultivate it, etc. And then, what, four or six months later? The harvest comes up and you go out and reap the harvest. Jesus says here that in the eschatological order into time that he is introduced, this proverb is no longer valid. He's saying there's no longer an interval between the sowing and the reaping. And Jesus is preaching the harvest is ripe on the same day in which the seed has been sown. Already the Samaritans are pouring out of the village and coming to Jesus. So he's saying, you know, plant the seed with the Samaritan woman. Now, we don't have to wait four or six months for the seed to develop and harvest. What's happened? She's gone out, and already the harvest is that same day that I sowed the seed. So he said, uh, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See how the fields are already white for harvest. So by the fact that the Samaritan woman, women, has uh, drawn others that, could this be the Christ? They went out and we're coming to him. So verse 36 comments on the prophet's thing in verse 35 advances the imagery. Not only is the harvest right, but the reaper is already at work. Sower and reaper walking shoulders. Just he just finished planting, the reaper is out there you know, harvesting the crop. So the game shifts from the speed with which the harvest has come to the joy of reaping the harvest. Then you have the second proverb. Verses 37 to 38. And that draws a distinction between the sower and the reaper. And this is something Jesus does affirm. In the Old Testament, there's a pessimistic reference to this happening, namely, a catastrophe intervenes to prepare a man from reaping what he has sown. <coughs> stories, you know, someone goes out, has all the trouble planting the crop, etc. What happens? Is it light or something happens that a hurricane or something wipes out the crop? Prevents him from sowing, from reaping what he has sown. In verse 38, Jesus applies this proverb in an optimistic fashion. He says the disciples were sent to reap where they didn't sow. And that's a reflection of the eschatological abundance. In other words, uh, who did the sowing? Who did the preaching? Jesus, who is out there reaping the benefit of the preaching? The disciples. So one sows, another reaps. So the disciples are sent to reap where they didn't sow. That's a reflection of what will happen at the end of time. And what does this sending refer to? Well, two possibilities. The sending is a great post-resurrection mission. Remember in uh, Jesus sends his apostles out to go proclaim to all the nations, baptize in the name of the Father, 
could be that sending. So now they are reading that proclamation, planting the seed, and somebody in the future will reap that harvest. That's one possibility. Or it could be a reference to a mission that the disciples had during the ministry of Jesus. Remember, he sends them out two by two, you know, to preach, etc. So, uh, and they come back, you know, uh, praising God that, you know, their mission has been successful. So it could be missions during the time of Jesus, or he might be talking about the mission that they're going to be sent out to do uh, after the resurrection. And the final part of this uh, dialogue here is the conversion of the townspeople, verses 39 to 42. As many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. What's her testimony? So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of your words that we believe. We have heard for ourselves, you know, this is indeed the savior of the world. So the story's conclusion brings together the themes of those, those two scenes, with the woman and with the disciples. The woman who was so important in scene one, is recalled because it's on her word, the townspeople believe. But the completion of the father's work the harvest of the Samaritans is to have greater durability because the townspeople now come to believe on Jesus' own words that he is the Savior of the world. So they were brought to Jesus. Why? Because of the word or testimony of the woman. Now they come and hear Jesus. Now they, their faith is now no longer in the testimony of the woman, it's in the actual preaching and teaching of Jesus. And that's kind of the reverse of what's going to happen later on with Thomas. The apostles believe because they have seen Jesus directly. And Thomas is asked to believe on their testimony. This is the flip side of it. They believe on the testimony of the woman, and their faith is deepened when they, in fact, hear Jesus preach and teach. Thomas, on the other side, the apostles had a direct uh, vision and appearance by the part of Jesus to them. And they tell Thomas, but he won't accept that. He wants to have the same thing they so, the evangelists then contrast the unsatisfactory faith of the Jews, back in chapter 2, which is based on superficial admiration of miracles. That's what brought, led a lot of people to believe in Jesus. But I think a deep to come to see him because, you know, uh, he has seen the miracles that Jesus worked. Nicodemus, the rabbi of Jerusalem, couldn't understand Jesus' message that God had sent the Son into the world, so the world might be saved through him. Yet the peasants of Samaria readily, readily come to know that Jesus is really the Savior of the world. So you have a difference here. Uh, these people now have a firm faith in Jesus because they're experienced with him, and they say, you know, uh, we believe because of his word. Whereas Nicodemus eventually uh, comes to Jesus based on his signs, then eventually he comes to believe in Jesus because of what he, Jesus has instructed him on, uh, that you have to be born from above. 
to gain eternal life. Okay. Right, any questions on that? A little unrelated. I'm just thinking as you're going through this. It's not powerful, so it's the product. Is it? No, I understand. So is it? Is, is it? Are we to take it as somewhat factually accurate as it actually occurred, or is it more like a teaching moment? Or what are the scholars saying? What are we supposed to take it? At? In other words, the the, the the discourse with the Samaritan woman. Well, uh, again. Whether this actually happened isn't the point. I understand. I'm yeah. just trying to figure out what they said. But John, what he does is he he could take maybe a couple of instances that he knows. As I said, he builds them into one drama. Right. The man born blind. Jesus cured a lot of blind people. But what he does is take the action of Jesus freeing the blind and makes it into a dramatic story that you don't forget. And what, what makes that rememberable is the dialogue, the back and forth between the man and his parents and the leaders, etc. What makes this so interesting? Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and he and the disciples, and the townspeople, etc. The involvement of all people. This is how faith develops and grows. You believe on testimony, but you also believe on direct word in relation to Jesus. Same thing with Nicodemus. I'm sure people asked him, just like in Luke, Teach you what must I do to gain eternal life? Right. Told him what to do, and then he had too many possessions. He didn't buy it. Right. So here again, Nicodemus is like representative of all those who want to know. I'd like to eternal life. What do I have to do? Tell me. You know, it's like you want to know. What do I have to study on an exam? Okay. Give me the give me the short and simple of it. Okay. So. Uh, but this is what John does. He creates all these Lazarus. Jesus raised a number of people from the dead in the Gospels. But he only picks one. He creates a dialogue between the disciples. I'm not going to go. I'm going to let Lazarus die. And then he goes and Martha and Mary, crowds of people. Then the involvement of the chief priests. They've got to get rid of this guy. Everybody's going to believe in him. Okay, so what he does is a storyteller impresses on you. Uh, you know, the the action and the effect of Jesus' preaching and his miracles. Just not simply saying he did this in two or three sentences. Right. You know, this is a whole scene. So you put these on as uh, one-act plays. You could really develop them into that. And this is what he does. what makes him so uh, memorable. They read the Nicodemus for the Samaritan woman, and then the conversation with... Uh, the Jews and the disciples about the bread of life. Then he has the man born blind, Lazarus, all these things are just amazing. And he tells us that there's many stories that aren't recorded. That's right. But I told you these. Right. So, yeah. you know, there's lots of other stories. But, you know, he gives a name and a, a face to these things that happened in his life. People came and asked what I have to do. You know, he runs into people who, you know, have a immoral life and they change why? Because he touched their lives. He, he told them, you know, he didn't shun her. She was worried that, you know, he was talking to her because she was a woman and a Samaritan. And then she finds out he not only knows that, he knows I'm a sinner. So why would a Messiah be associating with a sinner? On top of all that, you know, just I mean, shocked, but she's not shocked because by that point, she knows that she's, Jesus is not a threat to her. She wants to draw her to him. And she goes running and she becomes like Mary Magdalene after the resurrection. She becomes the first 
proclaimer, evangelist. come and see. It's just like the apostles, you know, they call the disciples. Two brothers come, come and see. That's what she says, come and see. This be the Messiah. She came to the well for water, and she left with faith and left the pot there. Yeah, she did, because she didn't need it. She didn't need it. She didn't need it, because she was going to have the living water. That, uh, yeah. So it's kind of like the Sermon on the Mount, in the sense that more likely than not, it was given at many different times, yeah. and put together, and that kind of thing. Because that's process. part of the editorial work of the writers of the gospel. They're not making up things. They're taking the stories that have come down to them and try to say, okay, how can I create a story, or not create a story, but write a story incorporating uh, the things that led people to believe in Jesus and to become his disciples? What did he teach? What miracles did he perform that he affected people's lives? And, uh, and it ends with the, the passion story, the resurrection of Jesus. So again, they're taking the tradition. Synoptics are working on almost a similar tradition. And Q, John is working off other traditional stories that have come down. And that's so uh, I think that's the beauty of thankfully having the four gospels that uh, each of them has worked on beside, just like at Mark, the cycles come off terribly. In Luke, the women come off beautifully. The men run away and they're dense, stubborn. Yeah, so each of them has certain things they highlight. Uh, Matthew is, you know, Jesus is a new Moses. I say to you, it was said to you, but I say to you. The interesting story resembles that of Moses. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I don't have enough time to start anything. So I'll give you a break. Next week we're going to do Bread of Life. We're going to do the uh, Healing of the Man Born Blind. Okay, so study those stories. Well, we happened to see, I guess, during when COVID started, there was a guy that went to the Sheen Center and did the monologue of St. John's Gospel. Yeah. There's also uh, Gospel of Mark, too, was done by one English actor. Uh, There's one man. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, it's powerful. Yeah, you could find it. It's powerful. Yeah, just or the Sheen Center might have it on there. Yeah, right. Interesting. We yeah, have a happy Easter. Happy Easter. Uh, we have two classes when you come back. I guess we could start shaking hands. Uh, oh, nice. Uh, oh, I'm not going to kiss you. I heard you call me. I'm going to say